a focus summary of chapters 37 through 44 of Bugjargal. The march pass continued, with a parade of naked Negroes armed with clubs and tomahawks, a disciplined band of mulattoes dressed in the English or Spanish manner, a band of negresses and their children carrying forks and spits, griot and griot in feathered aprons dancing to guitars and tom-toms, and the occasional dwarfs, priests, and escaped slaves. The latter carried standards with a confusion of sentiments, death to the priests and long-live religion, long-live the king and no more tyrant, showing the insurgents were a crowd as different as the slogans they carried. On passing his cave, they saluted Biasu, and he returned the gesture either with praise or censure, inspiring respect or dread. This parade of savage soldiery first distracted and then wearied Dauverny, and the last ranks filed away as the sun went down. The review concluded, Biasu condescended to address Dauverny again, saying his life depended upon himself, and he had the power to save it. The Obi, as much surprised by this act of pity as Dauverny himself was, addressed Biasu angrily, saying the prisoner belonged to him. And for a fleeting moment, Dauverny again felt that he recognized the Obi's voice. Biasu rose from his seat, spoke to the Obi in a whisper, and the sorcerer nodded to him in assent. Drawing a dispatch from his pocket, Biasu announced that things for them were going ill. Buckman had been killed, many blacks slaughtered, posts and passages fortified by the whites, and the camps depopulated by fever. The Grand Admiral of France had therefore decided it would be best to treat with Governor Blancheland and the Colonial Assembly. Biasu read aloud a letter addressed to the Assembly on this matter. Biasu then made his proposition. Because neither he nor Jean-Francois had been educated in the schools of the whites and did not know the niceties of their language, they feared that the letter might contain something at which their former masters would laugh. If Dauverny agreed to correct its faults, they, in return, would give him his life. This offer was repugnant to Dauverny's pride, and he declined it. Calling him a fool, Biasu gave him until the next day to think it over, reminding him that with them, death was not merely death. These words brought to Dauverny's mind the awful tortures which it was Biasu's pleasure to inflict. Dauverny's hands were bound, and he was given over to the keeping of the Morn Rouge, who might let him live through the night. Dauverny then pauses in his story to muse about unexpected misery, how it is like a torpedo that shatters but benumbs, making us feel afterward as if we are moving along in a dream. He says that if this strained position of the soul were to continue long, it would become madness, a happier state than the ghost-like existence that follows catastrophe. He then says he hardly knows why he is sharing these thoughts. They cannot be understood. They must be experienced. In any case, he says, they describe his state of mind when the guards handed him over to the soldiers of the Morn Rouge. Most of the guards had taken refuge in their huts, half a dozen staying behind with him. Soon, they were all buried in sleep. Dauverny's thoughts wandered to the calm and peaceful days he had passed with Marie, and then compared them to the last day in which he had three times been condemned to death. 
Thoughts of Marie forced themselves upon him, and he strained his bonds to break them and fly to her aid. The thought of Piero returned and drove him to a rage that made his temples throb to bursting, and he wept over his lost chance for vengeance. A moment later, he heard a man's voice singing, distinctly but at a distance. At first, he fancied it was a dream, and then knew it was the voice of Piero singing, Yo que soy contrabandista. A moment later, Rask rolled at his feet, and then Piero appeared before him. Surprise rendered Doverny motionless. Addressing him as brother, Piero reminded Doverny of his promise never to doubt him when he heard him sing that song. But Doverny raged at him, calling him the murderer of his uncle and ravisher of Marie. In a sorrowful voice, Piero said he pitied Doverny, but that he himself was far more wretched. The sound of their conversation roused the soldiers, who leapt up and seized their weapons. But, recognizing the intruder, they cast themselves at his feet. At the moment, this made no impression on Doverny, because he was boiling over with passion. Doverny cried out with anger over the chains that deprived him of his chance to take vengeance. Piero turned to the prostrate Negroes and ordered them to release the prisoner. Once Doverny was free, Piero handed him his dagger, saying with an expression of mournful resignation that having saved his life three times, Doverny had the right to dispose of it. Doverny did not seize the chance given him, because he could not bring himself to commit a cowardly murder, because a voice within him told him that no guilty man would behave thus— and because he was still conquered by an imperious fascination about this extraordinary being. He ordered Piero to defend himself, but Piero said he could no more fight Doverny than the loyal Rask could be made to fight him. He acknowledged that Doverny had suffered much, and begged that he not be blamed for the acts of others, just as Doverny had once begged of him. But Doverny demanded an account of what he himself had done, asking what had become of Marie. With trembling emotion, Piero pleaded that he trust him and promised that soon he would tell him everything. He asked Doverny to wait a while before he took his vengeance, so that he could first secure his freedom from Biasu. Despite all his prejudices against the man, Piero's voice made Doverny's heart vibrate and he found himself hesitating between distrust and blind confidence. As they walked through the barbarous camp where the men thirsted for his blood, Doverny was astonished that the Negroes only prostrated themselves on all sides. Doverny did not know what rank Piero held in this army, but he recalled the respect with which he had been treated by his fellow slaves. Even Biasu's guard, Condi, first advanced threateningly and then, Recognizing Piero, bowed at his feet. Doverny began to ask himself who this man could be whose power was so illimitable. He was still more astonished when Biasu himself bowed to Piero and offered him his throne. Piero said he had not come to take Biasu's place, but to ask him a favor that he grant life and liberty to Doverny. With an effort at the appearance of sincerity, Biasu responded that Doverny's life did not belong to him, but to his army, who desired his head as a counterpoise for that of Buckman. 
In response, Pierrot condemned the massacres that provoke the whites to cruelty and excite the passions of their unhappy comrades. He denounced the phony fanatics, like Biasu's own Obi, who urged their followers to pillage and murder. And he avowed that the white men were not so cruel as they, declaring their cause would not be made more holy by the massacre of women and children. The fire of his glance and the authority of his voice prompted Biasu to seek some pretext for escape. Meanwhile, with affected grief, Rigaud bemoaned the fury to which his nation had been aroused. News that the Negroes of the Morne Rouge had announced the return of Pierrot and declared their intention of supporting him inspired Biasu with fear of division in the camp. So, he sought to make some concession to Pierrot's wishes. He asked for just two words with the prisoner and promised he would then be free. Biasu asked Dauverny again to fulfill the condition and edit the dispatch. Dauverny again refused. He then learned that Dauverny's refusal had nothing to do with his confidence in his protector. On the contrary, he thought him a greater monster even than Biasu. Biasu expressed a bitter amusement over this strange situation in which Pierrot pled for Dauverny's life while Dauverny wished for his death. Knowing Dauverny wanted only time to exact his revenge, Biasu granted his freedom if he promised to return before sundown. Dauverny agreed. Pierrot had never looked so happy as he did when Biasu told him the prisoner was his, and with a strange earnestness, he led him away. Dauverny cared little for the trouble Pierrot had taken to preserve his life. Hatred and jealousy had taken a deeper root than ever before. Though Pierrot was enveloped by a mystery that was incomprehensible to Dauverny, one thing was clear. He had carried off Marie, and his crime had to be punished. As they reached the outskirts of the camp, beyond all listening ears, Dauverny stopped him and demanded that he say what he had done with Marie. When Pierrot asked again for his trust and promised he would tell him soon, Dauverny insisted he answer or defend himself. But Pierrot told him again that he could not contend against him, and anyway, he had but one dagger. He offered it to Dauverny. Dauverny seized it and placed the point on Pierrot's breast, threatening to plunge it into his heart if Pierrot did not say where his wife was. Pierrot implored Dauverny in soft and persuasive tones to grant him but one hour of life, for his own sake. Dauverny once again yielded to the secret power that Pierrot had over him, and he agreed to follow. <laughs>